0: Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, today we're going to consider creation in the book of Job, continuing this new series you've started. Mm -hmm. At this point, we're still in the introduction stage of our discussions about
1: the book. Well, that's right, Scott. There's plenty of background or contextual information to keep in mind as one studies Job. And so today, we'll talk about the theme of creation, which is a very important part of the book of Job, and the reason we're doing this series on the Scripture on Creation radio program. The theme of creation, we might even say, is fundamental to the message of the book, and that is not because the creation itself is the main focus, but the power behind the creation is the focus. The power behind the throne, so to speak. Exactly, Scott. You know, God actually identifies the creation as his throne. In Isaiah 66, he says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool.
0: That is a big chair.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. So, in a very practical way, we should understand that as the word of God points to the glories of creation... The purpose is to cause us to then consider the power behind the throne, the one responsible for that marvelous display of size and complexity, beauty and precision. And, you
0: know, I think that is a major reason why evolutionism is such an important philosophical position of atheists and even agnostics. It provides an alternate explanation for the origin and order of the universe in place of the fairly obvious explanation that a power even greater than that displayed in the universe, must be responsible for making it.
1: Uh, Like an omnipotent God. Exactly. (laughs) I couldn't agree more, Scott. And I think you're correct to include not just atheists, those who believe there is no God, but also agnostics, those who acknowledge there may be a God, but we cannot know him. The whole concept of creation, pointing to the creator, means that we can know something about God through what he has made. Not everything, of course, but enough to prompt us to pursue gaining more knowledge about this creator who has revealed some of himself in the things that he has created. Um, Isn't there a verse about that somewhere? (laughs) There certainly is. In fact, I'd say there's more than one. How about Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2? The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Well, what knowledge would that be? Knowledge about the glory of the magnificent Creator who made that vast expanse and all it contains. And even more specifically to the point is Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. Let's read that, Scott. All right. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness.
0: Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made
1: it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And so even though people come up with explanations which deny the cause and effect relationship between the Almighty and the origin and existence of the universe— The word of God makes it clear the one who closes their mind to what the heavens declare has no excuse for denying the existence or even the ability to know about
0: the creator. And that description of one of the things that we can know about God, stated right there in the middle of verse 20, his eternal power, is exactly what the book of Job focuses on when it talks so much about creation. Precisely.
1: Even to the extent that the name of God, El Shaddai, which means God Almighty, is what we might say is the special name for God in Job, as it is used so many times in the book. And that is highlighted by the fact that El Shaddai is not a name commonly used in the rest of the Bible. El Shaddai occurs 48 times in the entire Old Testament, and 31 of those occurrences is in Job. So the point of those numbers, the identity of God as the Almighty is definitely being driven home as the Creator is revealed in Job. And when
0: we look at the remainder of the times when that name for God, El Shaddai, is used in the Old Testament, most of the time, isn't it dealing with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yes, in the Lord's
1: dealings with the patriarchs.
0: Which is one of the reasons for understanding that the book of Job is so ancient. The events described probably took place in the same time period as Abram. In fact, Dr. Scripture, you've said that Job is possibly even the oldest book in the Bible.
1: Yes, and when I say oldest, what I mean is in the form that we have it today. It may be the oldest book, even though parts of the book of Genesis describe events before Abram. And as we discussed in a previous program about the time Job lived, we know he lived after the flood. So, all the narrative in the first 11 chapters of Genesis describes events that took place before Job could have been written. But remember, Moses wrote down and put together the book of Genesis, as well as the other four books of the Pentateuch. And he did that after the Israelites left Egypt, hundreds of years after the patriarchs, including Job. So, even though those early chapters of Genesis reveal information that predates Job, they were most likely written down by Moses in the form that we have them centuries after Job was written. Yet, I want to make it clear, we do not know those things for certain. But I think it's an intriguing point to keep in mind as we study the information recorded in Job, and in particular, the information related to creation. Okay, Dr. Scripture, you said that Moses wrote down and put together the
0: Pentateuch. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, Moses was not an eyewitness to any of the events recorded in the book of Genesis, right? Right. So where did he get that information? Now, it could be that God simply dictated it all to him on Mount Sinai. But it is much more likely that written documents existed that God directed Moses to include in the law. That is, the Pentateuch or the Torah, all those different names we have for the first five books of the Bible. And if that's how God had Moses do it, that doesn't contradict the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy at all. We understand and believe that God inspired Moses to write down those books in Hebrew and in the form that Moses originally wrote them. And what Moses wrote and put together were God's perfect inerrant words, And though there may be a copying error here or there that has crept in over the millennia since they were written down, we essentially today have that perfect revelation inspired by God and given to Moses. And as I like to point out on this show, that applies to not only revelation related to God's laws or things related to spiritual issues like sin and salvation, That inerrancy applies to the recorded history and especially relevant to this program, Scripture on Creation, the inerrancy of Scripture as it relates to Revelation concerning what we would call scientific
0: issues. So if the book of Job has a lot of information about creation in it, you're
1: saying a large part of Job reads like a science textbook. (laughs) Well, I've said this before, and it bears repeating. The Word of God is not intended to be a science textbook. But everything it does say about the material world is accurate. And especially in the case of the book of Job, there is so much information about creation in it. I would submit it is one of the Lord's intentions that we learn some lessons in astronomy, geology, and biology as we read it. And since we also
0: think Job is the oldest book ever written, The science information it contains
1: represents ancient knowledge. That's right, which dispels that common idea among the evolutionists that ancient man was less intelligent than humans of today, that they were ape-like brutes that barely used tools and scribbled crude pictures on cave walls, that they didn't know anything about the universe and the earth and our solar system or life on it. Well... They probably did not know about the incomprehensible number of not only stars, but even galaxies in the universe, nor would they have been able to perceive the complexity at the molecular level of living things. But we see that they understood things we still are puzzled by as to how they knew it, which to me indicates two things. They knew some things because they still had records of what God had revealed at the beginning, And they had technologies we don't know about that enabled them to search out their world. Remember, they lived to be over 900 years old before the flood. Imagine the things they could discover, the memories they would have possessed, and the continuity of information they would have not only stored in written form, but in their minds. But then, how much was lost as a result of the flood? The memories, the records... Only what Noah took with him would have survived. And yet, surely Noah would have collected and saved as much of the recorded information as possible, including his own recollections. But Dr. Scripture, even though
0: those pre-Diluvians were probably brilliant, like you've pointed out, a lot of their knowledge would most likely have been lost in the flood. So what about the people after the flood, the idea of cavemen, for example? That isn't something that anthropologists and paleontologists just made
1: up. How would you explain that? Interesting that you point that out, Scott. There is actually a reference to what we call cavemen in Job. Really? We'll read Job chapter 30, verses 3 through 8. Now, to set the context, Job is describing people who are outcasts from their society, probably criminals. So go ahead and start reading. Okay, Job 30, verse 3. They are gaunt
0: from want and famine, fleeing late to the wilderness, desolate and waste, who pluck mallow by the bushes and broom tree roots for their food.
1: They were driven out from among men. They shouted at them as at a thief. They had to live in the clefts of the valleys, in caves of the earth and the rocks.
0: Among the bushes they brayed, under the nettles they nestled. They were sons of fools, yes, sons of vile men. They were scourged from
1: the land. Well, that sounds like what we would say were cavemen today. Yep, They were outcasts of society, not representatives of the people in their day. The ancient peoples had wisdom and knowledge that I would submit in many areas surpass ours today. And a major reason for modern man's digression is our rejection of the knowledge of our Creator. As we proceed further and further from the acceptance of truth, we as a culture become more and more ignorant of reality. We can see that dynamic happening all around us. People believing flat-out nonsense, saying and doing things that make no sense. They are self-destructive to themselves and society at large. So the darkened heart of sinful man, ignoring the lessons from the past, plunges headlong into destruction and call it enlightened behavior. And so, bringing our thoughts back to Job, even though Job's friends were wrong in their conclusions about the reasons for Job's suffering, they did have a firm grasp of the power and holiness of the Almighty, as did Job. And we all would do well to keep that perspective in the forefront of our minds as well, regardless of what the rest of the world thinks or does. As Romans 1 says, because. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And that's not what I say. That's what scripture says.